0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Let's pray. Father, I can't think of a better prayer than the words to that song. And yet as we sing that song and as we pray that prayer... We have to acknowledge just the amazement that you would allow sinners such as us to have an intimate relationship with you, that you allowed us to be reconciled to you. You didn't leave us in our sin and in our pain, our misery and our death, but that you sent your son to redeem us. Father, it's amazing that as sinners today, saints in Christ, but as still sinners, people struggling with sin, people making mistakes, imperfect people, that we can gather this morning to worship you, to come to you. As Hebrews says, to enter your throne room with thanksgiving and praise, with confidence, knowing that we are good with you, not because we lived a really good week, not because we've Battled and fought over our, and won over some, some particular sin that we've been fighting over, but because of your Son. Father, I pray this morning, as we look at your gospel, as we look at the Gospel of John, as we start this series, as we look at Christ personally, deeply, intimately, Lord, help us to come with open hearts opened, minds to come looking for who your son is and help us to walk away from here just better understanding the depth of the gospel. Just be with us now, in your name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 1. I'm excited to jump into this book. It's been a long time coming, as I said, over the course of this summer. I've been reading it and preparing for this moment I want to start, though, by talking about some friends. Already in life, I've been fortunate to be blessed with a lot of great friends. With a lot of people who are better than, far better than me. People who have experiences that I wish I could have, but I get the privilege of, of benefiting from their experiences. These friends have gone to amazing places. These friends have accomplished great achievements. They have wisdom and insight far beyond me, and if they weren't in my life, I would, other be, I would otherwise be er, ignorant towards those experiences. Friends that have graciously allowed me to get to know them on an intimate and deep level. Friends that make me a better person because they're in my life. Now, who are these friends? It's the church. It's you all. And I'm talking about everyone in the room. Something happens on a weekly basis, even sometimes on a daily basis, often in my life. I think to myself, this person that I just met needs to sit down and talk with this friend of mine. Somebody in this congregation. Just last week, a new person came. What well, brought you here to Nashville? What are you doing? What's going on? I said, ooh, they need to go talk to this person. Because if they had the opportunity to sit and get to know this friend like I have, they would be a better person just like I am a better person because they are in my life. I love the body of Christ in this way that we can, we get to gather together and all of us make each other better. And I have these friends in my life. There, there are some particular friends that I wish I could write down their story. Wish I could write down the lessons that they've taught me. Wish I could, I could spread. Cause it's like because of them I've been able to figure out these things in my life. Because of them, life seems just a little bit simpler. Because of them, it, this crazy world that I'm living in is a little easier to walk. Well, this morning, as we begin to unpack the gospel of John, we get to see one friend speak about another friend. We get to see John, an apostle, write to us in a divinely inspired book about the events of his one friend. The Gospel of John is essentially one friend saying, I've had this one friend once who so changed my life, so impacted me, so much made me a better person that I have got to tell everyone about it. Let me write this down. You have got to meet this friend. Now, John doesn't have just any friend. He doesn't have a friend who who had some unique circumstance that, you know, gave him some insight He doesn't have a friend who got to travel to a lot of places, and so we get to experience, you know, those places through the pictures and stories of of those travels. He doesn't have a friend who's accomplished, you know, the amazing achievements as, as I have. He doesn't have a friend who has insights kind of above his peers. Rather, he has a friend that is so much more. He has a friend who is greater than any other friend. He is a friend who stands out above everyone else. You see, when somebody walks into this context and I think, I wish you could meet this person. I want you to meet them because in meeting them, you will be a better person. Because they will be able to give you an insight the same way that they've given me an insight. Today, when we approach the gospel of John, essentially what John is saying is, I want you to meet Jesus. I need you to meet Jesus. Your life is going to be fundamentally changed because you have met Jesus. Jesus that 's what this story is. This story, this book, these words, we are embarking upon meeting a man, the most important man that ever lived. Now, just so that you might think, um, how does John have the authority to do that? How can John be this how, how can John say these things and give these details? Well, he speaks about this friend on good authority because he was a friend. The author is John, the, the son of Zebedee. Now, he's not listed here. We're actually going to get into the authorship in a minute. We're going to go through some of those introduction details that need to take place at the beginning of any series. But here's how John describes himself in the book. Again, he's never by name, but here's how he describes himself. This is John 20, verse 2. This is recounting after Jesus has risen from the grave. And it says, So she ran and went to see Simon Peter and the other disciple. He's not even willing to list his own name. The one whom Jesus... Loved That close, intimate friend and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. That's how it's, it's considered. The one whom Jesus loved. The other way that John is described in the Gospels, not in John, but in Mark, was a son of thunder, him and his brother, James. Jesus lovingly titled the Sons of Thunder. And I bet Jesus described it that way because they were a little bit brash and they uh, were boisterous in in their personalities. And this individual, this friend, John, as he writes the gospel says, I need you to know about this man that changed my life. And the way that John writes this gospel is as an evangelist. A herald of the good news. I have something so precious. I have something so dear. I have something so great. I have a friend that is so amazing that you need to hear about him. Because he's going to change your life. I want to stop for a moment. So as writing this. In my notes trying to figure out how how am I going to describe this. I actually struggled with how informal I'm describing John and Jesus' relationship. Friends. We're talking about the creator of the world as we're going to get to. The creator of the world. And I'm describing this as friends. Like, I want to say he's so much more than friends, but that's the reality. When John thinks of Jesus, he thinks of him as a friend in the same way that you could write a story about your best friend here on earth. It's, this is the man that John ate with, that John uh, traveled with, that John had communion with, that John laughed with, that John lived life with. He was a friend in flesh and blood in the same way that you and your best friend interact. So when John is writing this, it's not something that some, you know, let me tell you about God in a spiritual sense. He's really saying, let me tell you about the physical friend that I lived with. Now, you may say, uh, calling Jesus a a friend is um, uh, inappropriate. Well, let's remind ourselves of the fact that Jesus was called friends of people. Matthew 11, 18 through 19, it says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking, and they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. These are people opposing Jesus, but the way that they describe Jesus' relationship with people in the world is he acts as if he's a friend to sinners, a friend to John, a friend to people. And what that tells us is that when Jesus lived on this earth, he did not live in some high, lofty, I'm unwilling to interact with you, lowly, sinful people. Rather, he's saying, no, I came to be among you, to be friends to you. One of the things that I've really been considering as I've been studying John and just um, figuring out the way that I want to preach this and focus in on is, is this. Because Jesus has been a part of my life for all of my life, it's really easy for me to um, only spiritualize Jesus. I don't want to say over spiritualize because that's going to give the wrong kind. But only spiritualize Jesus, like only think of him in the theological sense, or only think of him in the um, in the divine sense, or only think of him as oh yeah, that's Jesus. He's outside of time and space. He's you know, only, in, only focusing on his divinity. But what John does in this book is he sets Jesus in time and space and writes from him and says, let me tell you about the guy who walked this earth and I walked alongside of him for three and a half years and he really did these things because this man, yes, the son of God, yes, he's truly man and truly God, but this man will change your life. So the study that we're embarking on, this book that we're starting, is written by a man who wants us to meet his friend and his Savior for ourselves. I, I do want to look at, uh, we're actually going to look at the first three verses of John this morning. But I, before I get there, I want to give some, some introductory details as kind of all introduction sermons need to. You know, if, if you pick up any commentary, there's going to have a section of like, let's give some background stuff. It's kind of as we've been doing the, through the Plan of Redemption series on YouTube if you've been following that. Here's the details for John just so that we can kind of understand where, uh, where we are in time and space and what's going on. Authorship. It's kind of the big uh, big thing when it comes to any books. Who's the author? Well, as I said, the author is never named inside this gospel. It's never said, this is written by John. So, why do we say, why does it have the gospel according to John at the top of your Bible? Why is this this book, this letter, always given towards John? Well, that is because church tradition has said, John, the son of Zebedee, has written this book. And the only way that John is described in this book, as I said, the evangelist, because he does not want... Himself to get in the way of seeing his friend. He does not want to jump in and start telling his own side of the story. He does not want to take any of the credit. He he does not want to take any of the glory. He wants himself to be so far in the background of all that took place that he goes, listen, Jesus is front and center. Because it could be very easy as he's writing this for people to go, John, tell me about your side of things. What was that like? What were you feeling? What were your experiences? He doesn't want that. He's going, Jesus is the most important thing. So the author is John, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder. Date, when was it written? Somewhere around the later parts of the first century. And it was written in and to Asia Minor. That's important for a couple of reasons. First, this was one of the later gospels to be written. And that's going to we're going to get into those details in a minute of why that's important. And it was not written to those in Jerusalem. It was not written to those who were in Galilee and in that and, and in that space. It was written to those who were further out, who had begun to hear about Jesus, who had begun to hear about this really weird guy that walked this earth, that did miracles, that rose from the grave. Can you believe it? And it was written to to those outside of the immediate sphere, telling the story about. Jesus. And the purpose? The purpose... Well, John's actually very clear on that. The purpose is one thing he gives us. The purpose is found in John twenty thirty through 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. What that tells us is, John is not a complete account of Jesus' life. Rather, John wrote down the necessary things for us to know, so that we can grasp who Jesus was. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in him. You see, what was going on in this time period is that the knowledge of Jesus was beginning to spread. It was beginning to spread as his disciples, his, his followers were traveling all over the Asia Minor and in that area at the time. And this, this story of Jesus was beginning to spread and people were, were essentially going, that can't be true. How, how in the world can I trust that? And so John, as an eyewitness, John as an uh, apostle and a, a disciple, sits down and he writes this story about Jesus and goes, Okay, you want to know how this can be true? Let me tell you about my friend. You know, some of you have you've, you've shared with, with me some crazy stories that you've had. And every once in a while, with your permission, I'll share one of those crazy stories with another friend. And at times they can go, uh-uh, That could never happen. That's absolutely crazy. That could never be. Well, if you tell me that that would never happen, then I'm going to go say, no, my friend told me. You can trust the fact because I met the guy. This is John saying, I know that sounds crazy to you, but I met the guy. I walked with the guy. I saw this with my own two eyes. This actually happened. You can trust in him. And listen, you need to trust in him because he's going to change Your life. John's also one of four of the Gospels. And in the four Gospels, John takes a unique position within them. Because there's what's called the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then there's John. And John is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke in a couple of different ways. The first way is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus from um, kind of our side of history first. It starts with either the, uh, the genealogy of Jesus, or it starts with the prophecy about Jesus, or it starts with kind of the human side of Jesus. Here's, here's John the Baptist. It starts from our side of history first. And in the Synoptic Gospels, they all take a little different focus, like Matthew's talking about Jesus' kingship, and Mark is talking about Jesus' servanthood, and Luke is looking at his manhood to say that he is actually a man. But John is different. So different that 90-ish, 93% of John is not found in any of the other Gospels. Like the stories that we're going to look at, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't talk about. And a part of the reason is because those stories were already out there. John knew that there were other gospels written. John knew that those histories were already there. He knew that, okay, you've heard about the virgin birth, and you've heard about Bethlehem, and you've heard about him growing up, and you've heard about these stories and those stories. You've heard about the parables. You've heard about the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to tell you those things. It's not that those things didn't happen, but those things are already out there. Let me tell you a different side of things. So where does John focus in on? What does John look at? John's focus is on Jesus as Godhead, his Godhood, if you will. His focus is that Jesus is God. And we're going to see today that he begins the gospel with that. Jesus, my friend, my friend that I walk this earth with, My friend that I ate with. My friend that I laughed with. My friend that I had all of those experiences with. My physical friend was God. That's why John's got to write this book. Here's his friend. He's like, you have got to meet this guy. He's God who took on flesh. You need to know about him. So I'm going to tell you about him. John's emphasis is on God. And he leaves no time in getting there. As I said, we're going to look at the first three verses. But John opens up his gospel with a prologue. The first 18 verses of John chapter 1 are called the prologue of John where John essentially tells you what he's going to tell you. He describes to you who Jesus is. He describes for you what happened. And then, for the rest of the book, he's filling in all of the details. This prologue has has been considered one of the most, as one commentator said, sublime sections of all of Scripture. It's the grand foyer into the rest of the gospel. It's the cornerstone that is going to set up everything that we're going to see. And, if, and I know the difficulty of people who have grown up in church and have, who have had Scripture all of their lives and knew all these things and memorized all these things, the difficulty is jumping into a text like this and not just, and just immediately jumping over and filling in all the blanks. But kind of the way that this prologue would have gone down if you would have been the original reader of this is you'd have gotten done reading the first 18 verses of this book and you would have said, Huh. Well, there's some stuff in there I don't get. And you'd go, well, that seems odd. Like, imagine if you've never heard about Jesus and you hear verse 5, light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You're like, yeah, the sun shines every day and darkness goes away. Of course. Then you read the rest of the gospel. And I can just imagine this person opening it up and they're like, huh, okay, okay, Nicodemus, okay okay blind man okay okay oh high priest okay oh Jesus dies okay and you get done with 21 and you go oh my goodness and then you flip back to the beginning and you open it up and you're like holy cow I didn't see that That's kind of the way that this prologue is is here for. John is telling you all of the nuances he's going to tell you. And after the book is over with, we're going to look back and go, that's what he meant by the word. That's what he meant by light. Light shines in darkness and darkness has not overcome it. The light is not sunshine. The light is Jesus. That's what he means by the true light. That's what he means by having a real relationship with the Father. This prologue sets us up for all of these things we're going to see. And... For us, as people who have had the gospel, who have seen John, what I would ask you is just try to get back to that point of amazement that you had the first time you read it. Now, if I was writing a letter about one of you, my friends, the way that I would start it would be something like, well, when we met in 2000 and blank, or, well, this person was born in 1900, blah, blah, blah. Or this person comes from this. I would tell it from your side of personal history, or our side of history. But read with me John 1, 1 through 3. And let's see where John begins. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Where does John begin his story of Jesus? He does not begin it with our history. He does not even begin it with us. Rather, he sets the stage by looking at eternity. As I said, this is different than in any of the other Gospels. Matthew starts with a human Genealogy. Luke looks at the earthly forerunner. Mark looks at a prophecy, or John, rather. He goes, "Listen. In order for you to understand this guy appropriately, we got to start before we were in eternity." These verses are are um, are close to my heart because I've I've gone through Greek grammar twice in my life, once in undergrad once in seminary. I don't know why I had to go. Well, I do know why I had to go through it twice. I needed to go through it twice. It's a struggle both times. And each time I've gone through it, very early on in the course, Greek grammar, just learning how to translate Greek, just learning basic vocab, and you're just looking for any small victories of like that you can apply this sucker. Every time I've gone to John 1, 1 through 3. And that's because it's actually very easy grammar. The words are easy to translate. It's a very basic vocabulary. John is nice in that way. And both times when I went through Greek grammar, I translated John 1.1. Now, the hard part is because I've memorized John 1.1 in English, you also have to be like, no, don't just fill in the blanks, do the work, and actually translate it. Then there's a second class in Greek called Greek exegesis. Where it takes the nuts and bolts of the vocab and the structure and all of that. And it applies all of the details of what does this verb tense mean. And, and how are all of these different things can be translated. And how does one word interact with a second word. And how does the author use certain words in a book itself. And you get a deeper meaning. That happens in John 1. John one one is one of the um, most amazing verses out there. So here's what I want to do for the rest of our time. I want to s- show how John declares four things about Christ at the very beginning and how he sets up for us this description of his friend that is mind blowing and something that will forever change your view of Christ. First three come from verse 1. The fourth comes from verse 3. I want to go it phrase by phrase. In the beginning was the word. The word that when I sat in Greek exegesis and the professor said, that, hey, the thing you have to worry about here, the word that he pointed to was was. Because this was here changes how we look at Christ. We could say, in the beginning was the Word, therefore the Word was created at the beginning. But that's not what's going on here. This was is in the imperfect tense, and essentially what that means is that it always was. It's, the way you could be translating is it, it was continuing. It wasn't past, it wasn't present, it wasn't future. It was So one of the ways that you could describe what's going on here is that the Son of God, this is poor grammar, I understand this, but the Son of God always was was Always was was There was never a time when the Son of God did not exist. There was never a time when the Son of God was not. So the way that we should read this, as we're demonstrating that he is eternally pre-existent, is this, in our beginning... The word already was. Now, just for a moment. Think about that. If I were to tell you to think back as far as you possibly can, you could probably think back to the 1800s and think about what life would be like then. Maybe you could, you could get back to the 1500s and Martin Luther. Maybe you could get back 2,000 years and consider what it would have been like to walk on this earth with Jesus. Maybe you could even get back to, you know, Abraham and Isaac. Maybe you could go back to Noah. Maybe you could get all the way back to, like, what would life look like with Adam and Eve in the garden? Because, you know, they lived in our creation. So we understood what trees was like, what gravity was like, what humans were like. We can think back there. Think past that. Which can give you some space. think past that. A thousand years before the beginning. Which doesn't make any sense because time wasn't in existence before the beginning. Because time is a part of the beginning. But a thousand years before the beginning. Now a million years. Now a thousand years is like a second in God's eyes. And Christ was. Our minds look backwards until time disappears and our thoughts collapse into exhaustion. Christ was there. The Word was there. There was never a time when He was not. He is eternally there. The second thing that John points us to immediately this is His eternal relationship with the Father. Second phrase. And the word was with God. Again, this was here is still that imperfect tense. So, uh, you know, always was, wasn't with God. You can do that. But the important word here is with with here bears this idea of nearness along with a sense of movement towards God. So, so the word, Jesus, was with God. The Son of God was with the Father and always coming closer towards the Father. They were always together. They existed in the deepest bond between the Father and the Son. There was an equality. There was an intimacy within the Godhead, within the Trinity. And that was always happening. Now, we know the end of the story. We know the details of the story, the big parts of the story. We're going to get into the smaller parts. We know how this ends. Or kind of. We know a part of the ending. When Jesus is on the cross, in Matthew 27:46, says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" The way that we could understand that is. My God, my God, why are you no longer with me? The Son of God who was eternally with the Father in relationship to the Father took on flesh knowing that there was going to come a point in time when God was going to forsake him because of our sin. When... That communion, that nearness, that movement towards each other was going to be broken. Because God was going to be pouring out his wrath for our sin. This is the relationship that the son has had with the father from the beginning. And the reason he took on flesh was so in one sense that could be broken for a moment. We'll get into more of that as we get into the gospel. Third thing. He was eternally God. Third phrase. And the word was continually God. This simple, sen- this simple sentence in one verse is the most compact and pulsating theological statement in all of Scripture. John starts us off with a bang. Like, let me tell you about my friend in ways that will blow your mind. But we have a fourth thing. And this fourth thing that he quickly brings up in this prologue shifts our focus slightly. Because Christ is also the eternal creator. And now John begins to demonstrate Christ with us in view. John now speaks about what the Word, the Son of God, did for us. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now, the verbs are no longer imperfect of, you know, past, present, and futures, everything. Now, it's, there was a punctiliar moment when the beginning began. We know that from Genesis, obviously, when you know, John is hearkening back to Genesis 1, in the beginning, we're expecting to see God created the heavens and the earth. But no, now it's in the beginning was the Word. And in the beginning, all things were made, had a start, had a beginning, had an origin, had a point in time when it was not and then it was, were made by Him, through Him, And without him was not anything made that was made. I love that John describes this both in the positive and the negative. Because he just wants to make sure that we understand. And it's very simple. Like, listen, if he didn't make it, it wouldn't have been made. And, oh yeah, without him, it wouldn't have been made. Everything that we see here, everything that we experience here, this creation that we are in is because of him. There's no question about that. Now this isn't the only place in scripture that's talked about. Paul in Colossians 1, 15-17 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. One last one, Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-2. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. Who is this son? Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. John sits down to write this gospel. And he says, let me tell you about my friend. He knows. The weight that this friend carries. The depth that this friend has the person that this friend is is going to change your life. The Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. The first thing that John wants you to get as we start in this book, the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Truly, God is in Christ and truly Christ is a human, the person that we are approaching in this book with these stories. Our Savior was the Son of God. As we turn towards communion this morning, I don't, I don't know how the transitions are, are going to go with this book in communion because I, I in one sense I want us to almost feel that cliffhanger that the reader would be feeling of like, where's the story going to go? What's going to happen with this guy? Why did he come to earth? But every Sunday, because we're going to end with communion, every Sunday we're going to look at, we know the end from the beginning. In one of the commentaries, so I can't take credit for this, and I didn't even write this down, so I'm going to share this illustration off the top of my head. One of the commentaries I've been reading shares this illustration about Henry Ford and his friend who actually created the engine. And I guess this friend was so great that he had the ability to build an engine in his head and even if something was broken, fix it in his head and then go fix the physical thing. Because he just, as a mechanical engineer, he just was wired this way that he could think about these things. So he was the creator of this engine. And I guess the story goes that sometime there was this engine that was broken at Henry Ford's shop and all of his engineers couldn't fix it, so he calls over this friend. He goes, hey, I, we can't do it. Can you fix it? The guy comes in and he looks at it for about three minutes and he tinkers with something and he changes it and the engine fires up and it's totally fine. Well, a uh, couple of days later, the guy gets a bill for $10,000. And Henry writes back and goes, isn't this a little steep for your tinkering? The guy goes, okay. So he revised the bill. He said, "Okay, the bill for the tinkering is ten dollars. The bill for knowing where to tinker is nine thousand nine hundred ninety dollars." This guy created these engines. He he knew what was wrong with it. And he knew how to fix it. Our Savior created the world. Our Savior created you. Our Savior knows you in a more intimate ways than you know yourself. When our Savior took on flesh, he knew what was wrong with us. He knew what we needed. He didn't come to earth and was like, oh my goodness, it's worse than I ever thought. God, can you look at these people? Did you know this? No, when Jesus took on flesh, he knew what was wrong. And he came to do the thing that he knew had to be done that we couldn't do. And I'm not going to say he tinkered in our life because that's, whoa, that's not enough. But what I am saying is that he came to offer us the thing that we needed, which was his perfect life. And was a death that would satisfy God's wrath for our sin. And was a resurrection from the dead and a new life and a new heart. And he did that. So as we look at John and as we approach the story and as we look at John's friend, Jesus and we approach the communion table every week, as we always have, consider this. Your friend, if you were in Christ, your friend knew what you needed the most and gave it to you. A new heart and a substitute. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ personally as your Savior, if if you're still on the other side of John's gospel, what John is writing to you saying, listen, I've written these things so that you may believe and you may have life in Him, what I would ask this morning is that you allow the elements to pass you by. Because in taking them, that's not how we receive Christ. We take them to remind us of what he has done. And so as we take communion together, those who are in Christ, remember your heavenly father, the creator of the world, the person who knows more about you than you know about yourself, knew what you needed the most and gave that to you. You are feeling, I am sure, insufficient today. You are feeling like there needs to be a lot of tinkering going on in your life to fix the garbage that's going on because that's how I feel every day. And yet our Savior knew what was needed and offered us that in his body and blood that we get to take together this morning remembering his death. I'll pray and we can do that. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your life, to be reminded of who you are. Lord, it's amazing that you, who are eternally preexistent, eternally in relationship with the Father, and eternally God, took on flesh to dwell among us became a real flesh and blood person, truly God and truly man. But Lord, thank you for that because you knew that's what was required. That's what we needed and you loved us enough to send your son. Father, I pray as we take communion now that we wouldn't take it and and, and feel the guilt of what we have done. We wouldn't take it and and be overwhelmed by our inadequacies because Those are never going away. We would take it and be reminded of the glory of the gospel and the hope that we have in you. In your name, amen.